All right, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. If you don't have a study guide, raise your hand. Uh, You always need one, but today you need one extra. I want to make sure everybody has one because we're going to cover some details toward the end of our time that I definitely want to make sure you have that study guide to help you sort through what we cover. So throw up a hand. We'll get some extras to everybody in the room. It'll only take a second. And while those are going back, I just welcome you here this morning. We are walking through the book of 1 John, the letter uh, titled 1 John. We're walking through that together. Today we have made our way to chapter 2, so if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. And I'll just remind you of, of the meat and potatoes, the main strategy that we go after week in and week out as we are walking through books of the Bible And what me and Ryan are aiming to do with God's help week in and week out is we're preaching the Word to you in such a way that the main point of the sermon is the main point of the passage. And the conviction driving that is is really that we believe that God is smarter than man. And God is certainly smarter than us. And so... uh, you know, not so much me and Ryan every week, you know, thinking, you know, hey, Dustin, hey, Ryan, what do, you, what do you think we should talk about this week? OK, really, the text in God's word drives what we preach week in and week out. And we we believe that this is the most healthy thing for the church, that God's people are consistently exposed to God's word. And so this is what we're doing. And we get a chance to do that today. Again, God is faithful to do that. We get to gather around God's word as the people of God. And we just sing it. That your word is riches for the needy soul. And then we sang, come speak to us today. God, God will answer that. God is faithful to give us exactly what we need from his word. To encourage us consistently from his word. So we're going to spend some time praying. And we're going to ask God to do just that. So let's pray. Lord, we come this morning as your people. In the name of Jesus, we are here, Lord. We are your church. We are your children, your sons, and your daughters those who have been created by you and bought by your blood. Lord, and our desire is that you would show us yourself today. Show us your glory. God, remind us of who you are today, Lord. God, we thank you for this church. Lord, we thank you for the brothers and sisters all around us that we love, Lord. God, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you for week after week giving us a place to gather around your truth, Lord. And to learn from you and to be instructed by you and to stand in your presence and sing your praise. And Lord, we ask you today, God, that by the power of your spirit, you would make your word effective in our midst, Lord. Do God, we believe that your word is profitable. We believe that it makes a difference. And our plea today, Lord, is that you would use it to do what you designed it to do in our life, Lord. Encourage us. Encourage us, exalt Christ in our midst today. Exalt Him in our, give us exalted thoughts about Jesus today. Holy Spirit, exalt Christ in our affections, Lord. Pierce pierce us, God, with glorious things about Jesus. Remind us of what has happened to us, Lord. Remind us of the glory of this gospel. God, confront us. Confront any in this room, Lord, who don't know you. Confront them today. Do, Do with your word what you designed it to do, God. That's our prayer. Lord, we trust you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to read our text together. It's going to be two verses. So we're only taking two today. This is a little bit shorter than we normally do. 
but with good reason. We got a lot to cover in two verses. So let's read our text. First John chapter two, first two verses. This is the word of God. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, this is our text. And today, if we put a title on it, and I did, uh, this is about Christians and sin. This is about sin in the life of the Christian. And what we're going to get from this text is we're going to get a challenge and we're going to get an encouragement with our relationship with sin. So I want you to remember last week, and if you weren't here, I would, I would encourage you to go, go, back and, go back and listen to what Ryan taught. So last week, Ryan covered the back half of chapter 1 in 1 John. And we had a heavy dose in, in those few verses about false converts. Y'all remember that? Alright, so we have false converts and what they're doing in those few verses is that they are refusing to agree with God about their sin. They are, they are false converts. They are habitually walking in darkness, not in the light. And they are refusing to call their sin what it is. And, and they are basically saying, we, we don't ha we're not guilty of sin. And they're out of step with what God says about their sin. And John doesn't play games with them, right? He calls them a liar. He calls them a liar because they're false converts. They're not coming into agreement with what God says about their sin. They're not calling their sin what it is. They're saying they're not guilty of sin. Okay. Now, there's, a, there's another side of that ditch that you can fall, fall off of. And so if this is one side that you have a group of people who refuse to confess their sins, they say, I ain't guilty. Okay. You have another side and another ditch uh, that you can swing all the way over into. And we're going to see that. Uh, we're going to see that in our passage today. One, one, one telltale sign of a false convert was their refuse, refusal to agree with God about their sin. But I would say that this is a more popular and, and, and dangerous error in the culture that we live in. This swing into this other side. I would say that this is, this is probably even more popular, especially in the church. And this is the error of licentiousness. Okay? So you just jot that word down in your head. Licentiousness is using the grace of God as a license to sin. You, you hear this message of Jesus and your response to that message is to use that as an excuse to do whatever you want to do. And, and so here's the reality. Some people have no problem confessing their sin. They have no problem opening their mouth and talking about how sinful they are. They almost enjoy it, right? But, but this type of person that's caught up in this error, this licentiousness, they talk about how sinful they are and it rolls across their lips, but there's no grief in their heart about their personal sin. So they very easily talk about how sinful they are and how they fail all the time, but there's no fight with personal sin in their life. This is licentiousness. And to these Christians, to any Christians who are tempted Towards this direction, verse 1, he picks up the pen and he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. 
He is reminding Christians that we are not supposed to sin. We are supposed to be in warfare, in conflict against sin. And I just want to spend a minute on this. This is a real issue in our culture. And it's picked up a lot of steam in the last 10 years. This antinomian movement, this movement, this group of Christians, this flavor of Christianity where there's no law, no holiness, no obedience to God. It's also known as the hyper grace movement. You can go online right now and you can read 500 blogs that are infected with this type of teaching. This type of teaching, this teaching where sin rolls across the lips, but there's no warfare uh, being made against sin in the Christian life. Okay? Hyper grace movement. In these circles, these are telltale signs. There's a lot of talk in these circles about being real and being authentic. And what we really need to do is this, we just need to be open with, with each other and authentic with each other. And I say amen to that. That's not a bad thing. Okay? Being open and authentic and real is a good thing. It is a good thing. But a lot of times people use that as a mask to cover over this, this lack of warfare in their life with no personal sin. Even Tim Moran, this, this week, or last week, you know, he was telling me about a conversation that he was having with, with somebody. And the guy was like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I just want people to be real, you know, uh, all these Christians are being fake. And he said, and, and Tim said, you mean you want to talk about people being real or people being holy? Like, because because those aren't necessarily side by side, the same thing. And what he's doing is he's putting his finger on that. He's sniffing that out and he's putting his finger on that. Like the type of real and the type type of authenticity that we're going after is being open about our failures, but making war on sin, making war on sin. So. Consider verse 1. If you need this in your life, okay, if you find yourself that you lean towards that direction of just, yeah, I fail, yeah, I fail, the grace of God has got me, yeah, I fail, and there's no grief in your heart. Your, your heart never grieves over displeasing your God, and there's no warfare being made in your life against sin. Consider verse 1 a wake-up call from Jesus, from Christ, that you are supposed to wake up to obeying Jesus, to obeying His commandments. He expects you to obey Him. He is writing these things to you so that you do not sin. So that you do not sin. And so our first heading this morning is, why in the world would you ever need to remind a Christian of that phrase? That you are not supposed to be sinning. Why would you ever need to remind a Christian of that? Think about that for a minute. By definition... A Christian is somebody who has repented of their sins, asked for forgiveness from their sins. By definitions, that, that's what they are. So why in the world would you ever have to remind them that you're actually supposed to be obeying God? Why would you ever have to do that? So I want us to spend some time pressing into that question. We're going to ask and answer that question of why in the world would you need this reminder today that you are not to sin, that you are not to sin. I want to start, I want to define sin. I want to remind us biblically of what it is. And then I want us to spend some time talking about the nature of sin. Because that's, what, that's the reminder that we need. That we are liable to forget the true nature of sin. And so let's spend some time defining it first. Probably the most concise definition in the entire Bible of what sin is. Is found in 1 John chapter 3 verse 4. And in the middle of that verse, you have these three words. And it is a succinct, powerful definition of sin. And here it is. 
It says, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So that's the reminder. He's writing to these, these group of Christians that you are not supposed to be breaking God's law. I'm writing these things so that you do not break God's law. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It is anything that contradicts God's law. God's written law, whether that's on the page of Scripture or carved into the conscience of a human being. Sin is anything that is not in perfect conformity with God's law. Anything. I want you to jot this down. Okay, I want you to get this. It is anything that is not in perfect conformity to God's law. Sin is anything you do or fail to do. Whether you do something you shouldn't or you fail to do something you should. Sin is anything you do or fail to do. Whether intentional or unintentional. Whether intentional or unintentional. No free pass for unintentional sin. It is anything you do or fail to do. Whether intentional or unintentional. Anything in thought, word, or deed. That is not in absolute, perfect Harmony with God's law. The Bible calls that sin. Absolutely anything that falls short of perfect harmony with God's law. It's sin. And what makes it more than just, oh yeah, we all sin. Like, oh yeah, the Bible teaches that we all sin. What makes it exceedingly sinful is when you break that law, when you snap that law, when you fail to do what God has commanded you to do, it is counted as a personal offense against God Himself who stands behind that law. This is not, oops, I got a speeding ticket. This is, this is, oh no, I rebelled against the King of glory. I broke the King's decree, the King's authoritative demand. It is exceedingly sinful. And we have to see it like that. That's the nature of it. Sin is not mainly things that we do horizontal. When I, when I fail to do what you expect me to do, yeah, in, in some ways that's sin, but the nature of the wickedness of sin is not found in the horizontal. It's not you failing other people or you, and, you, and you being mean to other people. The sinfulness of sin is found in that vertical rebellion towards God. Vertical rebellion of God who spoke out that authoritative law. And you fail to do it. Or you do what he says not to do. It makes it exceedingly sinful. Rebellion against God. And God hates it. For this reason, God hates it. Uh, a lot of you have, have heard this analogy before. If you go up and you, you know, punch Ryan right in the face. Like, you know, Ryan might get mad at you. Might get offended at you. And, 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 and Ryan's a godly man. And he'd probably restrain himself, Right? Probably, uh, but if you if you uh, you know go do the same thing to Barack Obama, uh, a man of uh, of exceedingly more authority and power, what do you think is going to happen to you? You go and, and smack Barack Obama right in the face. What do you think is going to happen? Guantanamo Bay, right? <laughs> That's what's going to happen. You're going to get shipped off to a quiet corner of the world. Now, say, say, take it even further. Uh, Kim Jong-un, you go and smack him uh, right in the face. What's about to happen to you? You will immediately lose your life. And, and, and that's the, the measure of sin and the, the offensiveness of sin is directly tied to who sinned against. To who sinned against. And we are talking about God. 
the King of glory, that we do what He says don't do. And He has all authority. And we rise up and rebel against the highest of kings. This is sin. And because we do that, because we are in His face rebelling against His law, He absolutely hates it. He absolutely hates it. Jeremiah 44, verse 4. Do not do the abominable thing that I hate. That I hate. The God of the Bible absolutely despises sin. He hates it. It's an abomination to him. And this God, not only is he offended by it, he turns the corner and he swears, the God who can never lie, he swears that he's going to punish all sin. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul who sins shall die. The soul who sins shall die. Sin is offensive to God and he will punish sin. That's what sin is. Now, why would not we need a reminder... As Christians, why would we need a reminder? You're not supposed to be doing that. You're not supposed to be involved in these transgressions and these rebellions against God the King. You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to obey God. Why would we ever need a reminder of that? Because we constantly slide towards soft views of sin. We forget the nature of it. We forget how evil it is. How sinful it is. And so we need these reminders. In our flesh, we are tempted to believe... Error about sin. And you saw that last week. You saw that last week. In the next chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, we get a description of the nature of sin. I want these to be reminders that you take with you today. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. These are two things about sin that I want us to remember. This will help us to wake up to the sinfulness of it. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the son of God appeared. Was to destroy the works of the devil. So be reminded of two truths from this verse. First is this. Sin is satanic in nature. So what do we gravitate towards? We don't talk about idolatry against God. Okay. And, and spiritual prostitution against God. We have all these little soft names about, you know, sin. Like, I'm struggling with pride. You know, or, uh, you know, I'm str- you, you mean that, that you are habitually uh, tempted to kick God off the throne of your life. Is that what you mean? Like, because that's, that's what it is. You see what I'm saying? We gravitate towards this soft language about sin. And I want this reminder to be laid on us. Sin is satanic. How about that for the next time that we dabble in these rebellions and these failures? Every single time that happens in your life, you are personally imitating Satan, his nature. You are participating in what he has been doing from the very beginning. You think that would be helpful to wake up to the sinfulness of that? That this stuff is satanic. This stuff is satanic, these rebellions against God. And the second thing we get from that same verse is that Jesus came to destroy sin. That's what the context of the verse means. He came into the world to destroy sin. He was hammered to the cross because of sin. Spikes were driven through the body of the Son of God because of sin. Wrath was poured out on the Son of God because of sin. And so when we gravitate towards these soft views, fluffy views of sin, we mock what Jesus did. We mock the saving work of the Son of God when we fail to see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. This is His nature. 
And John reminds us that we are not to give way to a careless attitude about personal sin. He writes these things so that you may not sin. So that you wouldn't give, give way to sin. Now that was the law. And now we get the gospel in this, in this same verse. Point number two. How does a Christian who is fighting sin deal with their failures and their rebellions against God? And, God, and John gives us this remedy in verse 1. And he says, but if anyone sins. So he's writing these things so that you don't sin. You're supposed to be making war against sin. But then in the midst of this war that you're making against sin, if anyone sins, he's about to tell us of a provision being made for Christians in the midst of sin. Now, the first thing I want to do is I want to dial, dial this in very specific. In this passage, he is talking about the sin of Christians specifically. Okay, And I want to prove that to you from this text. That's the first thing that I want you to see. He is explicitly dealing with the sin of true Christians, not the sin of false converts, not the sin of unbelievers. He is dealing with the sin of true Christians. So the question is this, who is anyone in that verse? Who is anyone in verse 1? If anyone sins, they're about to have some really gracious gifts poured out on them. So who is anyone? Okay. Context demands that the anyone there refers to true Christians. Go back to chapter 1. That if anyone who's in this group of chapter 1 verse 3, this group is in fellowship with the apostles. This group that's in fellowship with God and, and, and in fellowship with His Son. Chapter 1 verse 7. If anyone that's, that's a part of this group that is walking habitually in the light. If anyone in this group who's a part of chapter 1 verse 9 the ones who confess their sins and receive forgiveness from God. These are the little children of chapter 2, verse 1. These are Christians. And if anyone, if any Christian sins, he is about to announce something glorious that's available to us in the midst of our failures, in the midst of our rebellions. I want to take this further. You have to see this distinguishing in this letter between the sin of false converts and the sin of Christians. So I want to press into this. John distinguishes this in another way in chapter 1, chapter 2, and he does it with verb tenses. And I want to give this to you. This is, this is, this is exceedingly helpful for you to understand this letter. Every single time... In this entire letter, when he deals with the sin of false converts, he uses a very specific verb tense to highlight their sin. It's the same word, but it comes in a different tense. So every single time that the sin of false converts is mentioned in the whole letter, it is mentioned in the present tense. And what this is pointing to, what this is highlighting to us, is that false converts, this is, this is in the present tense, the continual action. And he's telling us there's a difference between Christian sin and false convert sin. They walk in habitual darkness. They constantly practice these things. Not so with a Christian. And so he's showing us that difference and he's distinguishing that with these verb tenses. False converts... Walk in habitual darkness. They don't stumble in sin. They walk around in it. They make their bed in sin. They wake up in this world and they live in sin. This is the practice of their life. And many of you in this room, God saved you 
from, from false conversion. That you thought you were a Christian, but you had no spiritual pulse. You walked in darkness for years. For years. And then God brought true conversion in your life. And you're not who you used to be anymore. How common is that testimony in this church? And every church in this region, really. This is false conversion. And then every time that he switches the corner and he begins in these two verses to talk about the sin of Christians, he changes tenses. And he doesn't use that tense. He switches to what's called the aorist tense. And this, and this literally is the snapshot. These are not, the Christians are not the ones who are walking around in habitual darkness. They are not the ones who are practicing sin in a continual way. This is a snapshot of their life. A snapshot moment in their life. And John anticipates that a Christian will sin. But these tenses show us that it's never going to be the habitual pattern of their life. Never going to happen. Never going to happen. One more thing here. The verb to sin in our two verses shows up in what's called the subjunctive mood. And, and in Greek, this means the mood of probability. And so what John is saying is this. If anyone sins, and you probably will. And you probably will. He is making provision ahead of time for when we fall on our face and fail our God. He expects it. He expects that this is going to happen in our life. And we know experience bears this out. Every single one of us continue to have these moments of failure in our life. Every single one of us without exception. Uh, James chapter 3 verse 2 is true. And what it says is this. We all stumble in many ways. There's not anybody in this room that can say, not me, not me. Yes, you do. We all stumble in many ways. And we stumble. We don't walk around in sin. It is not the continual practice of our life. But we all stumble in many ways. We know what this is like. Every Christian in this room knows what this is like. And we are to expect... From God's word, we are to expect this battle with sin that we are in to be lifelong. This will not stop until our bodies are raised from the dead by the resurrected Christ. Until we are raised and glorified with Jesus. This battle will rage in our bodies in this world. And every Christian, you're going to know you're going to fight sin in your life. And you're going to know victory over sin. In fact, that is going to be the disposition of your life. You are going to know what it's like in this world to have victory over sin because the resurrected Christ lives in you. But at the same time, you are also going to know many times and in many ways what it is like to fail your God. Until you die, until they put you in the ground, you are going to know victory over sin and you are going to fail. You are going to stumble in many ways. And so... If this is true for every Christian, without exception, you better know what you're supposed to be doing when you fall flat on your face from God's commands. You need to know what to do when you sin, when you, when you stumble in many ways and you fall on your face and you fail your God. You need to know what to do in those moments because that can cripple you. That can cripple you. And, and many of you know what, I've talk, what I'm talking about. I have seen it happen in, in varying degrees all, all across these rooms. I see your faces. I have seen sin crippled because it's done it to me. You sin. You don't know how to deal with it. You don't know what to do. And so it sends you, instead of to God, it sends you away from God in despair. You are downcast. You don't know how to deal with your sin. 
I've seen sin cripple believers for months at a time. They can't take one step towards God because they are crippled over this sin. This condemnation has beat them into the ground. And so you have to know how to deal with this. You have to know how to deal with your failures before God. And in the midst of our sins, in the midst of these failures that we're all going to experience, He announces this glorious provision and it comes in these two words. Every single Christian, every single Christian in the midst of their sins, God delivers us an advocate and a propitiation. And that is the glorious gospel of Jesus. And we're going to push into that this morning. This is how we deal with it. God has made provision for us to deal with our failures and our sins against God. The word advocate, it means one who is called alongside us to help us. One who stands beside us to help us. And in the context of these verses, it has legal implications. It's similar to a defense attorney. And he announces basically that, that Jesus Christ for every Christian in the midst of their sin, Jesus Christ is the, the defense of attorney toward God the Father. Toward God the Father. The word propitiation, it refers to a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. A sacrifice that cancels the wrath of God and restores God's favor. And Jesus is both of these for the Christian in the midst of our sin. He's both of them. He's the advocate and he is the propitiation. Now we're going to press into both of these words. And I want us to spend some time with you thinking about, well, why do I need that? Why do I, why do, why do I need an advocate? I mean, it sounds good, but why do I need it? Why do I need a propitiation towards God the Father? And I want you to notice that both of these words are God word. Okay? Both of these actions are happening from the Son to the Father. He is the advocate towards the Father. And He is the propitiation, and that goes toward the Father. So, this is what we're going to press into. There's something behind these two words that make them absolutely necessary for us. And it's something about God the Father. Okay? He's doing something towards God the Father that if He did not do, we would be in a massive amount of trouble. Eternal. So I want us to press into this. What stands behind these two words? God the Father is God the just judge. And so what's standing behind both of these two words is the inflexible justice of God. You note that. God... The God of Scripture is the God of inflexible justice. He doesn't flinch. He doesn't waver. Not one millimeter will He flex from perfect, absolute justice. And that is a terrifying thing for a sinner who has broken His law. If you go into a courtroom and you are guilty from the moment you walk across the threshold and somebody tells you that the judge on the bench is absolutely inflexible in His justice, your heart begins to race. There is no question in your mind of what's about to happen. You are about to be served justice for your sins. This is what stands behind these two words. God, the just judge. He never looks the other way about sin. He never does that. 
That's the heresy in the culture that you live in. That God, the way he, he forgives sin is He sweeps it under the rug. Because He's that loving grandfather figure that can't bear the thought of these people going to hell. He's not like that. He doesn't sweep it under the rug. He's the God of justice. God, the righteous judge. The God who can never lie. He has promised to pour out uncompromising, never-ending wrath on every sinner on planet earth. He has sworn this. And he can't lie. So I want you to think about this. When is the last time that you paused in a quiet moment in your life and you meditated and mulled over and lingered over this truth of your need to be shielded from the hurricane of God's eternal wrath through the ages? When's the last time that you stopped and thought about that? Of your need to be protected from His justice, from His wrath. When's the last time you thought about this? This is the problem in our generation. Every, the, the, main, the main problem with every person, their most immediate need of every person on planet earth is they need to be delivered from eternal wrath. Eternal wrath. And you know how we deal with that in, in our culture? We sling out these little catchphrases like this. How much damage has this done to the nature of God in this culture? God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. God loves the sinner and he hates the sin. Is that true? It's a half truth. Everything in the phrase is true. God loves sinners. God hates sin. But the Bible goes way further than that. And what that phrase does not tell you is that it is clear teaching of Scripture. Clear teaching that this God, this righteous, inflexible, just God, He actually hates sinners. The God of the Bible hates sinners. He, sinners are the object of both the love of God and the wrath and the anger of God. This is who He is. This is who He is. How many have been lulled to sleep over the nature of the just judge with these little catchy cliches? The Bible teaches that He both loves and hate sinners. And it is important for us to highlight both of those truths. Because that second one is the background to these two words. That advocate and that propitiation. If you don't know that, you could care less about these gifts. These graces that Jesus is our advocate and our propitiation. So let's spend some time looking at it. The God of the Bible has eternal wrath. And His wrath is real. It is a reality. It is not something that the Bible uses to scare people into obeying God. His wrath is an eternal reality. It's more real than your heartbeat right now. It's more real than the air that you're breathing. It's more real than every molecule in your body. His wrath, His eternal wrath is a reality. It's a reality. The God of the Bible is the God of the Genesis Flood. He's the God of the Genesis Flood. Seven chapters in this book. Seven chapters in. This God wipes out everybody on planet earth in an act of holy judgment. He kills every sinner on the planet except for eight people. This is the God of the Bible. This is His nature. The God of the Bible is God the righteous judge 14 times. 14 times in the first 15 Psalms. You go to Psalms, go through the first 15 and mark these off. About 14 times you get some form of this phrase. God hates sinners. 
God hates sinners. I want you to see these. This is who He is. Brothers and sisters in Christ. His wrath, His anger is real. This is real. This is real. Psalm 5, verse 5 and 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. You want me to tell you a terrifying thought to have as a creature? A weak creature is being in front of your Creator and you knowing that He abhors you. That He abhors you. You say, God doesn't hate sinners. Oh, He abhors sinners. He has a holy hatred towards sinners. This is His nature. This is who He is. What an absolutely terrifying thought throughout eternity. Object of wrath. Anger. God's anger. Let's, let's see it again. In Psalm 11, verse 5, we are told that God's soul, His soul, hates the wicked. His soul hates the wicked. From deep within His holy being, He burns with a holy hatred. Not just towards sin, but towards the sinner. Not just toward wickedness, but towards the wicked. Sinners outside of Christ are the object of wrath. His wrath does not consume sin in a vague way. It consumes sinners. He is the God, the just judge. And then let's look at this one more. Psalm 7, verse 11 through 13. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. The God of Psalm 7 is the God of the Bible. He is God the righteous judge. Do you see what that verse just told us about God? The God of Scripture, the God who creates and rules all things, is ready to punish all sinners. He is pictured as someone with a sword in His hand. Did you see that? A sword in His hand. And it doesn't say, you know, something silly about it. He is ready to wet it. He is ready to jab that sword into the soul of sinners. He, this is the God of Scripture. It's the God of Scripture. The same verse. The very same verse. Psalm 7. He is the God who takes His strong arms and bends back His bow. And He is ready to fling fiery arrows of judgment into the soul of sinners forever. This is His nature. This is His nature. He is ready to unleash wrath. He is the angry God because He is the just God. Do you know that? When is the last time that you stopped and thought about, I need to be protected from Him. I need to be saved from that wrath. When's the last time you thought about this? The Puritans used to say, God is absolutely terrifying outside of Jesus. God is absolutely terrifying outside of Jesus. You know how the gospel is preached in our day? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Things are not going really well for you, but Jesus has a great plan. Just try Him. Just trust Him. 
No mention of sin. No mention of guilt. No mention of eternal wrath. And the wrath that was put on Jesus Christ. He is the Savior of sinners. We need to recover this in our day and in this church that God is absolutely terrifying outside of Christ. Absolutely terrifying. Outside of Christ, He's terrifying because we have offended Him, we have rebelled against Him, and He is furious with us because of our rebellions. This is why you need an advocate. This is why you need a propitiation before you and God. And outside of Christ, every person in this room, outside of Christ, this is what you will certainly face forever throughout the ages. You will face God the righteous judge, the one with the sword in his hand, the one who has bent and readied his bow. And he will pour out wrath on all sin. He has sworn from cover to cover in the Bible that he will do this to every unrepentant sinner outside of Jesus. Every single one. The only place of safety for us is in Christ. And this is what he announces, right? That for every single Christian, anyone, any one of us, that God has done something to turn away that anger and turn away that wrath. Brothers and sisters, we have an advocate. Every Christian in the room, we have an advocate toward the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Literally, we continue to have an advocate. Every moment, every day, Jesus continues to be the one to stand between us and the Father. We have an advocate, one who pleads our case before this God of inflexible justice, not going to flex an inch from His justice. Before the God who designed hell itself. Before the God who angels hide their faces from this God. We have one who stands beside us and pleads our case to the Father. That's good news, right? We have an advocate. Before our accuser. Before our accuser. Revelation 12 verse 10. Satan is called the accuser of the brothers. And he stands before God and accuses them day and night. He's like the prosecuting attorney in this analogy. And he stands before the judge and he looks at us with hatred, always seeking the death penalty. And he accuses us before the judge. And before this accuser, we have one who stands beside us and pleads our case to the Father. You have to remember this. In in these moments of failures, you will be lied to. You will be lied to about the work of Christ. You will be lied to about your sin and Jesus' power to cleanse you and restore you. That is the voice of the wicked one in the midst of these weak moments that you have. And we have to know in those moments that a stronger voice is going to God on our behalf. Someone standing beside us and pleading our case with the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous. The one who has never sinned. The one who has always obeyed God. Always loved God. Always loved neighbor. Not a, not a millisecond of sin. Always lives and breathes for the glory of God. From eternity past to eternity future. The righteous one stands beside the guilty one. And pleads our case before the Father. He is the advocate for every single Christian. This is the high priestly work of Jesus This is His ministry of intercession. And if you've ever wondered this, Jesus was resurrected on the third day, ascended to heaven, sat down on heaven's throne, and then what? And then what does Jesus do after that? 
This is what he's doing right now for every Christian. He is in the ministry of intercession. He is our advocate going to the Father on our behalf. Every single Christian, you have been given this glorious gift of the advocate. What does he plead? Not our innocence, right? You can find, you know, an attorney pretty much in every city of our country. And you could probably tell him, like, yeah, I did it. But he's going to go to the judge and find every loophole of why you really didn't do it. Jesus doesn't do that. He takes you into the courtroom in your guilt. And he doesn't look at the judge and say, they didn't do it. We did. We broke God's law. We are guilty. This is not his plea. He doesn't plea our innocence. He pleads his own blood and righteousness in our place as our substitute. He's not, he is addressing the Father. But he is not asking God, God, could you be really lenient? Could you sweep that under the rug? Listen to this, brothers and sisters. He goes to God. And he's not asking for leniency. According to chapter 1 verse 9, Jesus opens his mouth. To the Father for every Christian. And he says, God be faithful and God be just. Get that in your mind. How in the world? How in the world could you have one who is guilty? And, and, and our advocate says, God be faithful to him, be just to him. That sounds like a death sentence. Right? Why in the world would he ever ask God for justice? Why would he ever ask God to be just to us? Isn't that a glorious thought? That He pleads for God's justice for you. Not just for leniency. He pleads that God would do what is right towards you. Right toward you. Absolutely mind-blowing. That, that Christ would ask for justice for guilty sinners like us. Absolutely mind-blowing. Now you think about that. How could He possibly do that? What would be the basis of that plea for justice? Where he would look at God the Father, the God of inflexible justice, and say, Be faithful, be just, Lord. Be faithful to Him and be just. And that's where we come to the next phrase, the next gift. Is He can say that because He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for the sin of every single Christian. Every single Christian. The propitiation is what grounds his ministry of intercession. He is both priest and sacrifice for us. He is the one who stands beside us to address the Father. So he's the priest. And he's the one who grounds that petition in his bloody sacrifice for us. He's the sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice and our priest. And our priest. He grounds his priestly ministry. And this bloody, wrath-canceling sacrifice called a propitiation. Called a propitiation. And by our side, this righteous one, he continually advocates for us on the basis of that sacrifice. One time, forever. It is effective for us. And he constantly makes appeal towards it for every Christian. And so I want you to get that picture these verses picture Jesus in heaven right now standing 
in our place and for us before the Father. And He is pleading that God would be faithful and just toward you. And that He would wash away all your sins. And that He would accept this perfect sacrifice. Be faithful to Him, Lord. Keep that promise. Keep that new covenant promise. Be faithful to your people. Never cast them aside. Never forsake them. Never put them away. And be just to them, Lord. Accept this perfect sacrifice that I have delivered to you on their behalf. Be just, Lord. Be just to them. Do what is right. Cancel that sin. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus. He forgives us in a just way. He forg- He's the just judge and the Savior. He's the just one and the justifier. This is how He takes away our sins. Through justice. Through justice. His sacrifice, this propitiation, it's not offered over and over and over again. It's offered one time and it becomes effective throughout all eternity. Listen to Hebrews 7, verse 25. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for us. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for His own sins and then for those of the people. Since He did this once for all when He offered Himself. The Son of God was slaughtered. And He, moment by moment, on your behalf, in Christ, He appeals back to that perfect sacrifice forever. It was done. It was finished on our behalf. And He constantly calls the Father's attention back to this sacrifice. This is the priestly ministry of Christ. How encouraging is that in the midst of a failure? This unseen reality is happening that we have to wake up to. That we have to wake up to. So this word, propitiation, it tells us what the cross did to God. What the cross did to God. And we know that at the cross, many different things happen. You get forgiveness at the cross. You get declared justified when you believe the message of the cross. You get delivered from the dominion of darkness at at the cross. There are a lot of things that happen to you. This propitiation, by definition, it happens to God. It shows us that something happened to God when Jesus became that bloody, wrath-canceling sacrifice. God was literally propitiated. He was propitiated. That means that Jesus' death turned God's anger away. And restored God's favor. He is the propitiation between us and the God of Psalm 7. Jesus Christ is the one who stepped between us and the God of Psalm 7. That God that we talked about a second ago. And and listen to this. And he goes before this God. The one with the sword in his hand. The one with the bow bent back. And Jesus does not begin to say things like this. Please calm down. Please calm down. Just calm down just a little bit. Just listen. Let me talk to you for a second. Just please put those weapons down. We do that kind of thing. Jesus didn't do that. Why? Because He knew that that God was a God of inflexible justice. And there was no chance that sin would go unpunished. So what did Jesus do? He became the propitiation. He became the slaughtered one. And say, what do you mean? He steps in front 
of this Psalm 7 God. And that God of inflexible justice, He takes that sword that should have went straight through our entire being. That sword of wrath. And He stabs Jesus with His own wrath. And that bow that was bent back, ready to sling arrows into our souls throughout eternity. Jesus steps in our place and He unloads it all on Christ instead of on us. God the Father killed God the Son instead of us. Jesus is our propitiation, our substitute, our wrath-canceling sacrifice. Hallelujah to His name. Praise to His name. We have been delivered from eternal wrath through Christ. Through Christ. He is the propitiation. His death was not a bribe. He didn't bribe God with His blood, with His righteousness. His death satisfied God's justice. He turned away God's anger and God's wrath. I'll give you an example of this. We studied through a couple of weeks ago. We studied through Genesis. And in Genesis 8, right after the the global flood. In Genesis 8, the first thing that Noah and his family do when they hit the dry ground in Genesis 8 is there is a sacrifice offered to God. You can read about this in Genesis 8, 21. And it talks about this sacrifice being offered to God. And then the language that's used is this. That God smelled that pleasing aroma. That God smelled that pleasing aroma. That is a picture of what happened towards you when Jesus is slaughtered in your place. He unleashes wrath on the Son. And it's not just taken back to a neutral place. That sacrifice of Jesus is a pleasing aroma to God the Father. His wrath is appeased. It is satisfied. It is turned aside. His justice has been satisfied on our behalf. And then the next thing that happens in Genesis 8, after he smells that pleasing sacrifice, is the God of Scripture says, I will never again curse. I will never again curse. Can you hear that? From God today, that because of what Jesus has done for every Christian, that the God of Scripture opens His mouth and says, I will never again curse you. I will never again curse you. Wrath has been satisfied for us. He is our propitiation before God the Father. I don't want us to have any weird ideas that the Father is the reluctant one in this process. He is not. He is not reluctant to forgive us. In fact, this whole atonement, this propitiation, He designed it. He designed His own satisfaction of wrath. Listen to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's His nature. That's His nature. Jesus didn't twist His arm to forgive us. And love... From eternal counsel, this was God's plan to redeem us. To redeem us. Through justice, to redeem us. Give you a couple more verses. This is who our God is. Psalm 78, verse 38. He being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity, and did not destroy them. He restrained His anger often, and did not stir up all of His wrath. Psalm 85, verse 2 and 3. You forgave the iniquity Of your people, you covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned away your hot anger. This is what happened to us. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That has been poured out on the propitiation for every Christian. 
for every single one. Got one more thing I want us to cover. Okay, this is important. Those gifts that we just talked about, that covering from wrath and that that gift of an advocate to stand on our behalf. Who gets that? Who gets those gifts? Who gets Jesus as their advocate and as their propitiation? And we need to spend some time on this. There's some difficulty in this text. And I want us to press into it. This should not be too hard to you if you have been paying close attention up to this point. This is going to fall in line with everything that we've already said. Okay? Who gets this propitiation? John says, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. The sins of the whole world. And so John says, there, there is a big group, a big group that's going to receive these gifts. They're going to receive Jesus as their advocate and their propitiation. Now here's where we're going to spend some time. The Greek word for world in that verse is the word cosmos. And that word can mean different things in different contexts in Scripture. I'll give you some examples. It can mean the entire creation. God's entire creation, the world. Okay? Or it can mean all of humanity. All of humanity. Or it can mean a wicked world system. Or it can mean all unbelievers in the world. Or it can mean all the church in all the world. It can mean all of those things depending on the context. So the question is, what does it mean here? What does that word mean here? I remember the, one of the first ways that God humbled me of thinking I know more than I did was, you know, early in Christian walk, we were around a pretty zealous group of believers. And, you know, somebody taught me how to do these Strong's number word searches. And I thought I knew more than I did. You know, who, who needs Greek scholars? Like, man, I got this number right here. We can, we can go to town. And I remember one day, I remember reading John 3.16. God so loved the cosmos. He so loved the world. And then I remember reading 1 John 2.15. And God says, do not love the cosmos. Do not love the world. And I remember thinking, there is no way that those two verses can mean the same thing. No way. Obviously. They have different meanings depending on the context. So what does it mean here? What does it mean here? And, and I want to use this as an opportunity to teach us, to teach our church, to be very careful in how we deal with Scripture and how we deal with words of Scripture. It's important that we understand who gets Jesus as the advocate, who gets Him as the propitiation. And part of us learning this is going to be us learning how to handle words of Scripture. And here's just a principle. Here's a principle. Sometimes really broad words in the Bible need to be qualified to avoid heresy. To avoid heresy. And I'm going to show you an example of that. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 verse 18. I grew up hearing people mock stuff like this. So like broad words, like the word all, the word everything, or the word world. These things need to be qualified to avoid heresy. And, and people, I've heard many people mock this. Like, you know, you've heard this too. All means all, and that's all all ever means. World means world, and, and God said it, and I believe it. And I'm going to show you where that mindset and where that path leads toward when how you deal with the words of Scripture. Let's go to Romans 5 verse 18. And let's read this together. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, 
So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Now, let's go meathead simplistic, right? Let's say all means all and that's all it ever means. But you got a problem in that verse. What is it? If you do that with that word all in that verse, you jam yourself into no other option but that Jesus died and that every single person on planet earth is justified. That is the heresy of universalism. That Christ died and everybody saved. Nobody goes to hell. All men are justified. And that is obviously not what that means. Right? Obviously, that is not the teaching of Scripture. Obviously, it needs to be qualified. And every single one of you would say the same thing. All who believe, all who respond, all who believe this gospel will be justified. Every Christian, every single one, it has to be qualified to avoid heresy. And this is popular. That, that is still a popular thing. It has been throughout church history. Universalism. And in our day, maybe three years ago, maybe four or five, this, this, this hit the modern culture probably. It's the, it's, it's the best one I remember as a popular uh, teacher. He was on the fringes already of Christian orthodoxy. And he came out, his name was Rob Bell, and he came out with a book called Love Wins. Love Wins. And the premise of his book and what he was teaching was this. Love wins in the end for every person. Jesus died, and because Jesus died, everybody goes to heaven. God loved the world. Jesus died for the world. And that's what he taught. That's what he taught. You know what he's doing now? He's renounced the faith, and he is a spiritual advisor to Oprah. Okay, That's where this stuff leads. It is heresy. It is heresy. Alright, so we have to learn how to deal with words of Scripture Carefully, carefully. Many have used this verse that we're dealing with right now to justify universalism. That Jesus died and everybody saved. And we need to be aware of this. We have to avoid using this simplistic approach when we, when we see this word world. Okay, So I want us to spend some time on this as we close. To understand how the word cosmos is being used here. I want us to understand the Jewish background of what's happening. John consistently uses this word cosmos to describe the work of Christ as not being... It's not just a Jewish thing. Okay, It's a world thing. And I'm going to show you that's a theme that runs through his writings. We'll start with Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 and 10. Galatians chapter 2 verse 9 and 10. And when James and Cephas and John who seemed to be pillars, received the grace that was given, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So I want you to know this. This is John. He is a Jewish man. And the main thrust of his apostolic ministry is preaching the gospel to the Jews. To the Jews. So when John is saying, not just for us, also for the whole world, likely he is saying not just Jews, but all of them, all the world. It's not just a Jewish thing. Now I'm going to give you five, six points of why he means that in this text. I'm not just going to tell you that. I'm going to give you scripture for you to see this for yourself. This is how John uses this word. Another layer of this is our word propitiation is the same Greek word for the word mercy seat. It's used like that in the Greek Old Testament and in the book of Hebrews. 
So when we say Jesus is the propitiation, we need to think He's the mercy seat. Now that has an Old Testament background. There's only one day a year where blood hit the mercy seat in the Old Testament. It's called the Day of Atonement. And what John is saying is that Jesus is the Day of Atonement. Now in the Old Testament, that was just a Jewish thing. There was one day a year where Israel, God's people, they had their sins removed. On the Day of Atonement, when that blood hit the mercy seat. And what John is announcing here, this is not just a Jewish thing. Jesus is the Day of Atonement, not just for us, but for the whole world. For the whole world. Let's go to the Gospel of John. This is how he uses the word in that book. In John 4.42, Jesus is called the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. There's not a person in this room that would teach. That means that every person is saved. So what does it mean? So what does it mean? And I want to show you the context. John chapter 4, verse 42. Jesus is the Savior of the world. Chapter 3, in the Gospel of John, Jesus preaches the Gospel to a Jewish leader. Chapter 4, in the Gospel of John, Jesus preaches the Gospel to a Samaritan village. At that Samaritan village, Jesus is announced, He's the Savior of the world. The work of Christ is going to bust up all these ethnic tensions. and all. It's not just a Jewish thing anymore, not just a Samaritan thing anymore. He is the Savior of the world. He's the Savior of the world. Look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 20 and 21. Not a Samaritan this time, but a group of Greeks. That is non-Jewish. That is the Gentiles. That is people from the nations. And this group of Greeks. John 12, verse 20, 21. They are seeking Christ. So you have a group of Greeks, non-Jews. And they are in the presence of Jesus. And in that same chapter, verse 32, Jesus says this. I will draw all people to myself. I will draw all people to myself. Nobody thinks that that means that every person is saved. What does it mean? In the context, he is saying, I'm not just the Jewish Savior. I'm the Savior of all people. I'm the Savior, not just of Jews, not just of Samaritans, not just of Greeks. The Savior of the world. Verse 47 of the same chapter, Jesus tells us that He came to save the world. Do you see the context of this? It's not just a Jewish thing. It goes to the entire world. The work of Christ is for... The scope of it is for the entire world. Here's the closest parallel. In John chapter 11, verse 51 and 52, says this. Listen close. He prophesied... That Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. You see that? Jesus didn't just die for Israel. He died for the world. He died for all the nations to gather in all the children of God. All right, let's sum this up. Obviously, in these passages, obviously... John uses the word cosmos to refer to all people who believe without any ethnic distinction in all of planet earth. He does not use the word cosmos to refer to all people who exist without any exceptions. He is the savior of all who believe no ethnic distinctions. He is not the savior just by you merely existing in this world. 
He is the Savior of all who believe. And it is important that you know this to avoid the heresy of universalism. Jesus is not the bloody payment for any unbeliever. He is not the wrath-canceling sacrifice unless you believe the gospel, unless you respond to the work of Christ. He is not an advocate towards you. He will be your judge on the final day if you are outside of Christ. Only Christians get the advocate. Only Christians get the propitiation. And if you have not trusted Christ, if you have not believed the gospel, you don't have protection from that Psalm 7 God that we talked about. You have none. You have no advocate. You have no propitiation, but you can. This offer is made to all the world without exception. You, 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 you're called and you're commanded by God to repent and believe this gospel. And Jesus offers himself to save any and all who come to him through faith. I want to say this as we finish. When, I, when, we, when we say stuff like this about qualifying that word, qualifying that word world, you know, sometimes it's like, man, you know, he used a really big word and, you know, you made it sound like a really small word. Like, how can that make sense? Like world and you, you kind of, you know, you qualify it to, to mean something really small. I'm not talking about 100 people having Bible study, Okay. I'm not talking about qualifying this word in such a way that it's small. It is not. It is not. He is the Savior of the world. I want you to see that. In Revelation 5, this is how massive His sacrifice is. Okay? In Revelation 5, verse 9, Jesus ransoms people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The extent of the work of Christ is not small. It's universal. It's universal. Its scope is massive. He will call a people to Himself from every language, every nation. Look at this. Revelation 7 verse 9. This is mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. How many people are going to receive the advocate and the propitiation? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes, all, and peoples, and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. Jesus is going to save more people than any human being can even count. It's not a small thing. It is a massive thing. He's the propitiation for the whole world. This is the scope of His work. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. One more point. If He is the propitiation for the whole world, this means that He's the only one. In all of creation, in every corner of creation, there is no other propitiation available to any except for Christ. It is exclusive. He is exclusive. He is the exclusive path to salvation before God. There's none other available in all of creation. And every single person on planet earth is invited to partake of the work of Jesus. And the way that you partake of it, the way that it becomes yours is through faith. Through believing the gospel. And every single one who repents of their sins and trusts in Christ, that wrath-canceling sacrifice is credited to your account. And you get an advocate throughout eternity. And he's never lost a case, right? Our advocate 
His advocacy secures our eternal salvation. He cannot fail any Christian throughout the ages. He is the advocate and the propitiation. He is not the propitiation for the unbelieving world. He is the bloody, wrath-absorbing sacrifice for every person who believes the gospel. That is exclusive and it is glorious. It is a praise to the name of Christ. There is salvation in no one else. And that's the gospel that we announce to this world. The propitiation and the advocate. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, as your children, we ask you to be what you promised to be to us, Lord. God, we ask you to be faithful to your word. We ask you to continue to be our advocate and continue to be our propitiation, Lord. God, throughout millions of ages, God, stand beside us, Lord, and help us, God. Shield us, Lord. You are our refuge. You are our strength. Christ, you are our Savior, Lord. You have the words of eternal life, God. We can go to no other besides you, Lord. Come be the Savior that you promised to be to your people. God, comfort us in the midst of our failures. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.